Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, have you reached a verdict? A verdict? Welcome to the John and Jordan on Justice podcast. Your weekly deep dive into personal injury and wrongful death law. All right. All right. Touching on everything torts, legal tech, trying cases to verdict, and the outlandish stories that come with them. And now, here are your hosts, John Fisher and Jordan Reed David. All righty. Uh, good morning, everyone. It's here in the morning. That's good for you guys. I got a little bit of energy today uh, on the podcast, but also we've got a, a special guest with us. We have uh, one of our senior trial associates joined us, uh, House in LaFrance, or as we know him by his middle name is Ray. Um, joined the team past couple months. Um, we're really fortunate to have him here. You know, he comes from, he has a, 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 Big criminal practice in sense of a trial attorney and trying homicides. In fact, one of the cases he recently tried was a homicide trial where he got a not guilty. Yeah. We're going to talk a little bit about that. And you know, from the educational background, he's he's also the at um, he's one of the trial coaches down here um, at St. Thomas Law School. Uh, so he's got that aspect that aspect uh, that he brings to the table. So we want to welcome on the on the show, Ray. Welcome. Oh, thank you. All right. So I want to. Talk a little bit about um, your recent case. Um, you know, it was a big win. You came in to try the case in, in, a, in a homicide trial and ultimately walked out with a not guilty uh, verdict. Yeah. Um, so I want to tell me, like, tell me a little bit about that case. Like, what happened? What made it special? How'd you guys get that great result? Um, you know, you know, what are some thoughts about it? I mean, the... So I got involved in that case. It's a it's a case that um, colleague of mine from the public defender's office. It was her case. Um, she reached out to me and was like, "Hey, you know, I have this homicide case. This was back in, let's say, February, March." And she asked me to co-counsel with her, and I said, "Sure." You know, um, got onto the case. As soon as I got onto the case, I feel like is when like all the fires started in the case. Uh, we got like late expert uh, witness disclosed and. You know, we had to fight for a continuance, and I think that that little battle in the beginning is kind of what set the groundwork for us getting the not guilty verdict, and this is what I mean. Um, had I gone on to the case, I probably, in March, and we'd gone in March, I probably would have been on the case two weeks. Right. Um, but I got on it from March till we saw it to its conclusion, and I got an opportunity to do a deep dive into the case, and my co-counsel and I, like, you know, all the things that I thought were you know, problems when I was told, um, I saw it. I was like, this is not a problem. Yeah. These are all easy, easily explained away. And it's kind of like what um, what you talk about with Keith Mitnick about owning those bad facts. And I think we did a great job of owning every single one of those bad facts and made them a great fact for us. Yeah. I, I mean, yeah, that's really important. I mean, I, I stress that a lot. Well, two things you said there. One is, you know, having the opportunity to do the work in preparation for trial you know, a lot of people think that trial lawyers like, oh, we just have this this magic cape. We ride in, you know, yeah. we save the day. But the problem is, is we're laying the groundwork for trial all through the litigation of the case, right? Whether it's the deposition of an expert, whether it's, you know, the litigation of various issues, motion practice, discovery. I mean, all of those things, at least for us here, is tailored towards trial. And if you don't have that benefit, I mean, you have a completely different case, right? Yeah, I, I agree 100%. And. Yeah, and we had that recently in the Marsh Gonzalez case we tried because we originally were set to go at the beginning of the pandemic, right? Yeah, Where the brain injury had been in its, it was kind of in its infancy. And then as we had that additional time, court shut down, it gave him 18 months, a lot more treatment, a lot more 
aspects of that, more litigation. We got summary judgment on a big defense, uh, you know, in our favor. So a lot of things happened, you know, in that time period, um, yeah. you know, so it, it, I can see how that can, you know, definitely have a good effect and positive effect. You know, I was just thinking as you were talking about this, getting asked to co-counsel a case is obviously tr a tremendous compliment and not that you're doing anything for ego driven reasons, but at the end of the day, people ask you to co-counsel cases because they view you as adding value to the case, having experience and wisdom. <clears throat> but obviously, you don't get that from day one graduating law school. So maybe you can harken back a little bit. I mean, I know now you're teaching, right? You're a professor at a law school for trial advocacy. But maybe you could walk us all the way back and talk a little bit about your journey about becoming the trial lawyer that you are today, because it started with zero verdicts, right? Yeah. So maybe walk us up to present a little bit. I mean, we'd have to go back to law school, but like one of the things when I was in law school, I was like, man, who are the richest lawyers, right? And I just jumped on Google and I was like, okay, here's a list of the richest lawyers. Number one trial lawyer, number two trial lawyer, number three trial. By the time I got to number five, I was like, all right, cool. I'm going to be a trial lawyer. And I immediately joined our um, trial team. Um, I committed to trial team. I gave that every single fiber of my being to being great at being a trial lawyer. And then, you know, after law school, I went to the public defender's office and, you know, I, I didn't run from trial, man. Every opportunity to step in front of a jury and like validate what I, what I had learned from law school, I put it in front of a jury when I was a public defender and I just found success. And like, ever since then, you know, I've constantly, you know, work on my craft and, you know, I'm a big believer and I've told my students this, it's not enough to be good because being good, everybody's good. But like mm -hmm. when you when you want to be the type of trial lawyer that when people go against you, they say, I don't ever want to do that again. Not that you did anything wrong, but because your level of preparation and skill set put in them, like I'm never going to reach that level. And that's 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 the approach I take in the, into going into trial is like I want to leave you so, so impressed and so like, man, I don't ever want to deal with this. So let me give him or his client a great plea offer or a great resolution Right. So it, it's, it's kind of like a gift and a curse. Yeah. For me. And you were just to clarify, you were PD north of the wall over there in Broward. Right. Yeah. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> you didn't have some of the niceties and, and leniencies that uh, us no. south of the wall were uh, got it grew accustomed to. You were in there getting kicked in the teeth, I'm sure, day in, day out, because Broward can drive some pretty hard lines, yeah. Uh, yeah. both from the bench and the prosecutor's office. It's a strong office in the standpoint of how they negotiate at times which probably helps you develop as a trial lawyer because you're not going to just try the quote-unquote easy cases. Absolutely. Sometimes you're not going to have a choice that's going to be made for you and you still have to go there and deliver for your clients. So obviously that's, you know, that's where uh, the blacksmithing gets done, right? You, you, you yeah. get to sharpen and mold that sword and take it with you the rest of your career. So I always say, and I don't know how you feel about it, but I mean, I don't, I don't even know what kind of trial lawyer I would be without the public defender's office. Yeah. And I have told people privately, I'm sure it's come up with John and I, but he, you know, outside of John, I really don't even know uh, a trial lawyer that I look to and admire and respect in the, in the local jurisdiction where every time I watch them, I'm like, Oh, they're doing something unique or compelling that doesn't have that experience. It's a rare thing. So John, that's a feather in your cap, but I know for Ray, cause you, you know, you were there, you had colleagues, Trying cases is not easy. And some people, I don't know how you feel about this. They learn bad habits and then they, they don't learn how to break them yeah. or they're not like pushing themselves for new growth, trying new things and they get stuck in old ways. And that can actually be a detriment, right? Even though you're a quote unquote trial lawyer, yep. you know, yep. you don't, you don't find that success rate that you should. Yeah, no, I agree a hundred percent. I, I, 
I think, and sometimes I still go back and talk to um, young public defenders because a lot of my former students matriculate to the state attorney's office in both counties or to the PD's office in both counties. And then a lot of times when I talk to them, you know, I can see where they, their development stops after they leave our program, where they don't continue to learn. And I always tell them, like, look, you've got to continue to learn because you may go against someone who will absolutely smoke your boots. And one of the worst uh-huh. feelings in the world is you prepped, you did well, and then the, your adversary walked in there and just dominated you. Why? Only because they had better preparation, but they also continued to learn and develop new skills, right? Because, I mean, it's been my, I've been a lawyer eight years. In the eight years that I've been a lawyer, the, the style of trial has changed completely, right? Where I used to be a bull in a china shop, I'm no longer that anymore, right? And, that, and I credit that to just growth and research mm-hmm. um, because it just, I, it, it's not aesthetically pleasing. At least for me, I'm, I'm 38. I can't be up there, you know, riling up a police officer. You know, <laughs> it, it, it has to be done calmly now. Like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm still going to give you a rough go on this cross-examination, but it's going to be very nicely now. See, that's, that's a good point, because how many times have you heard someone older than us in the profession say, and I think this is a true statement, if you're going to try cases, be authentic to yourself. Yeah. Now, be who you are. Don't try and be somebody else. And I think that's really good advice. But that also just means <clears throat> you have to be who you are that day or that, that week. Yeah. Don't be who you were in the beginning of your career, you know, or don't be who, you know, be who you are in that moment, because jurors pick up on that. And that's, I'm the same with you. I was Pulling a china shop is a good expression, high energy, moving around the courtroom. Honestly, I found earlier in my career getting juries excited, right? Having them feel like they could sink their teeth into something was more critical. But sometimes as you get older or maybe the case dynamic changes, having more tact, being more composed is actually a a lot more persuasive. So you just got to be mindful of all that. Yeah, and Jordan still has to be mindful of that because don't let him lie to you. He still likes to get in some experts and then in there. Oh, did I say I don't like it? I just I have to. I can't do it anymore. That's all. Um, you know, yeah, it's 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 interesting. I mean, you guys, I feel like you know, you're talking about over the other side of the wall. I mean, you guys are like kindred spheres in the sense that neither of you or in my, in my knowing Jordan ever ran from trial, right? No. You know, Jordan had the reputation in the PD's office. They would come down like, who will try a case? Jordan try any case. Like, what's this case about? I don't really know anything. Just put me in there. I can figure it out. And I. I got to watch that, you know, and it and it inspired me because, you know, I wanted to do trial. That's all I wanted to do was trial. I did trial team. I did trial advocacy, everything, lit skills in Miami, like trial, 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 trial. And then when I tried to get to do trials, if you're not at the public defender's office or the state attorney's office, you're not getting trials, right? So I went in and I was like, I didn't even get an interview, you know? <laughs> I'm like... I'm graduating with honors. I got some law reviews on my stuff. I'm on trial team. And they're like, oh, did you CLI? No, I did not. Oh, okay, well, goodbye. And I don't, and you know, and I remember, I mean, I went and worked, I mean, Jesus, I went and worked at a uh, clerk for some lady making 20 bucks an hour, working 20 hours a week. You know, I'm ne- I mean, if I was in that moment, I would never be going to trial. You know? 20 bucks an hour, man, you missed out as a PD. You could have been 10. It would have been great. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. But, you know, but peanuts. yeah, but it was funny because, you know, and, and as loyal as I am, I ended up starting working for somebody else. And they were like, look, I'll pay you 30 bucks an hour. And I was like, but I'm still working for her. I don't want to, like, not leave her high and dry. And then, you know, she said, you know, words to me that I still remember to this day. And I'll always remember. She told me that she when I was still going to work for her for that cheap rate. She fired me. Right. Hmm. Which to me was like, thank you. I can go make $10 more an hour. But at the same time, she told me, oh, well, I don't, I just don't think you're hungry enough, you know, and here we are with the multi-state practice, multi-jurisdiction, you know, 
trial team, you know, doing all these things. And it's like, I remember those words, you yeah. know, and I, my, my swing and a miss on that assessment of you. Yeah. I mean, it's that like not a word that would come to mind or phrase. And, and I'm always learning because yeah. for me, if Jordan remembers my first trial, I mean, I went in there, like the only thing I had was damages three by David ball. You know, I didn't, you know, you could watch some trials, but until you just get in there. Yeah. But the benefit that I had is I had that, that trial team foundational application of like, do I know how to introduce an exhibit? Yes. Yep. Do I know where to stand? Yes. Do I know how to deliver something? Yes. Yep. You know, do I understand the basic ideas? And I couldn't even imagine trying to try a case without that, yep. right? Without that benefit, without public defenders, some kind of training, you know, and, and for me, you know, I look back on those early trials and, <laughs> you know, it's night and day, even, you know, five, 10 trials ago, you know, it's just as the progression, as we learn from these other lawyers, see what they're doing. I mean, we've kind of revolutionized our approach to trial yeah. in the sense that we talk about not eating anything, you know, not the negative facts. I mean, literally we have, I showed every single Facebook photo from oh, the yeah. defense <laughs> in opening statement. And then they never showed it again in trial. They, and they were like, well, we weren't going to use that anyways. And it's like, yes, you were. <laughs> you know, and it's like, I would never have done that. I'm going to just give you my good facts and then and wait. And it's like, it's it's kind of counterintuitive. And, and one thing I'll say before I, you know, turn it back over is that you said something that I, I resonate. is like, it's not enough to be good. And I always believe that good is the enemy of great. Absolutely. Right. And, and I don't think that I'm good. Um, you know, I'm, I'm my hardest critic. And even in the sense, even when I've overprepared, in other words, sometimes mentally, I still feel like it's not enough. And then when I, when it's showtime and it's ready to go, of course it's enough and it's more than enough and we do a great job, but it's like, I have that mentality that it's never enough. So I have to keep working hard, keep doing yeah. more. So that way, when I go in, I don't want someone to outperform me. And I, and I think we've gone against some of the best trial lawyers and we've yeah. done well. And so I think that, you know, moving forward, it's just in, you know, it's exciting to, to kind of put that all together. So, yeah. Ray, let me ask you something. We're talking about, John was talking about trial team. You actually coach and teach the trial advocacy class and team at St. Thomas. So uh, I never had the benefit of going through that program. University of Miami at that time didn't really offer it. They had like a litigation skills program, which was this watered down dilution of something remotely related to advocacy, not helpful in the real world, but <laughs> You're there still to this day, you're teaching kind of the next generation of people who are coming up thinking that this is what they want to do for a living. Yeah. So I kind of want to get your insight because I'm sure that some of our audience out here is our law students aspiring to be trial lawyers or maybe thinking about it. And maybe you could give some uh, some words of advice about the value of not just going through a trial advocacy program, but seeing how you can apply it to, to, future, to your future career. Because for me, sitting from the sidelines, uh, I definitely notice those, uh, at least younger in my earlier in my career, I did. I noticed those people who I'm like, damn, where did they get all this polish and pizzazz? And they knew how to do this and the themes they're formulating. They know where to stand. And then I, it all clicked for me and I never had that benefit. So I had to play catch up. But maybe you can kind of shed some light on the importance of going through a program like that if it's offered. So I think trial team. So like at St. Thomas, my role is I'm the faculty advisor of our trial team, right? Um, it's my job to you know, develop every student that comes through our program. I, you know, my stated goal is always from the day you come in to the day you leave, I want to be able to ask you and say, do, do you feel like you got better as a trial lawyer? Because if the answer is yes, 
then I've done my job, right? It's not about winning or losing, even though I love to win, I would love to win as much as possible. Um, that, so going back to your question, so trial team, I tell everyone, I think everybody should do it. If you're going to matriculate to the state attorneys or to the public defender's office, I think it's mandatory. And the reason why is, even if you're not going to be in trial every single day of work, that level of confidence, that ability to think mm -hmm. on your feet, that ability to say, this has happened, now let me find an answer, you know, immediately, right? Um, I think that's where trial team is important. And, you know, going through the process, you know, doing these competitions, like when you walk into these competitions, it's not like it's an easy go. You're going against another set of people who are equally as trained as you, who are equally as motivated as you to do well. And it's like a, it's like a, it's, it's like the law school version of football, right? Both, both sides are well-trained and, and quite frankly, the state of Florida is the SEC for those who are football fans. It's the SEC of law school uh, trial team. Yeah. With so many good schools in this state. Except Miami. <laughs> no, my, Miami actually won the championship recently. Did they really? Yeah. They well, won. you know, when I left, um, you know, Jordan was a little years after me. They, it, it like disbanded and yeah. turned into like a club. Yeah. You know, and that was kind of unfortunate because we had, you know, Terrence and Terry Anderson um, and uh, God, what was his name? It's right on the tip of my tongue. I can't forget. But once the, he kind of left, it was like the trial yeah. team went to the, the side. And so yeah, they're uh, back. Yeah. Well, that's good that they won. Well, <laughs> hats off to Miami um, winning their championship. Although we won't say that too loud, Ray. For St. <laughs> Thomas. Hey, it's okay. Well, John, uh, John, you were talking about like. Uh, what seems like elementary things like learning how to introduce evidence. Mm -hmm. And here's something that I've found over however long the career has been trying cases, criminal and civil alike. Sometimes you'll walk into a trial and within two hours, you know, maybe right before the jury is about to come in, you and the other side have worked it out. And there's kind of this agreement, Hey, all this stuff is just going to, we're going to start with this stuff in evidence, which completely removes the need to later actually have to lay the you know, get it in, lay the foundation, go through all the steps. And I find that it's, it's a nice convenience. I know the court appreciates it. And at the end of the day, brass tax, I, I appreciate it. It's a good thing, but not every trial is like that, but those are the type of skills that if you haven't done a trial team and then you get thrown into a trial one day, you're not going to remember that from evidence one oh one or whatever we take in a law school. I don't remember. I don't even know if they cover that on evidence. Sometimes it's more substantive and less real, real life procedural um, but those are like some of the skills that I think if you just always have those in your repertoire, I remember when we hired Elroy, he was at FIU's program. He was an exceptional talent, but I remember the first trial I took him on. Well, we took him to a federal trial first, but the first state case was an arson trial in Broward. And that's why I tease it's North of the wall. Not, they didn't agree to anything. So everything was a fight. Every evidentiary issue was a fight. At least that's how I remember it. And even though I felt confident because I had the experience from the PD's office, knowing how to get things in, how to make certain arguments. Here's Elroy, never tried a case in state court in his life. He's got his little Earhart's book, which he frankly fucking memorized, it seems. And he was right off right there with the judge, so much so that by day two or three of trial, the judge was like, he was spending more time trying to figure out how the hell has Mr. John not tried a case before, right. you know? And it came from his trial team prep. And so I just think, you know, I see it with my own two eyes and I can, I can you know, I can appreciate and respect. It really does pay dividends. I think gives you a leg up where now you can focus on the more sophisticated things or fine tuning and in, in your development, and you're not stressed out worrying about shit. I forgot how to do this, you know, elementary thing here. You know, and to add on that, one of the um, most important things I think having that trial team experience does. Early in my career, 
you know, I had a similar experience to Elroy where the judge, my first trial, looked at me and said, oh, man, you must have been trying a bunch of cases. What brought you down to misdemeanor to try this case? I'm like, this is my first trial. You know, and the judge was like, what? I'm like, yeah, I'm like, this is my yeah. first trial. And he couldn't believe it. And it's only because of everything that I learned from trial team. It's mm-hmm. like, you know, and I remember calling my, he's my mentor now. I'm like, I, and I, I guess I can say this now because I'm leaving criminal. I was like, man, trial team was way harder than what I just experienced in this trial. Because this was, this was easy. You know, I knew everything what I was supposed to do. I knew the objections. You know, I knew mm-hmm. my responses. Mm-hmm. And it all came off as clean. You know, whereas in trial team, I struggled with that. But, you know, the struggle was because your opponent is equally as prepared, as, as knowledgeable as you, and then has spent months in the same fact pattern as you. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it does bring you in. And, Jordan, you had the case. Remember, we had the Angel Montero case where you had to introduce into evidence the report. Um on on cross that of the newly disclosed surveillance individuals we ultimately got a new trial on that from a uh, prejudice standpoint but you know i always just remember and like i could literally recite how you do it right yeah you know i'm showing you what has been marked for identification (laughs) as exhibit one right then you say what is it they tell you what it is and then if it's a document it's same or substantially the same condition and if it's a picture does it fairly and accurately represent from yeah. the from whatever, and then and then I'm moving what has previously been marked for identification as Exhibit One into evidence as Plaintiff's Exhibit One. You know that, and that's just the trial team yeah. minutia that you do, and you look good, and it's formulaic. But yeah, when you get into trial, it's like, oh, we we admit all these because it's just it's a waste of time. I, yeah. I don't need to call a records custodian to come in and establish a business record of a medical record. I don't. The photographs are that. I don't need to ask that. We're all just, yeah. you know, it's almost like. We're all adults. Let's save try time and trial and just get through the the evidence objection. So I've I found that that to be we don't we don't see you see it or use it as much yeah. uh, as we have. I think we do still sometimes in federal court, but that's because sometimes yeah. I don't agree. So. Uh, well, you know, it's also one of these things. Even as basic as that example is, it's one of these things, John. You talked about. You always feel like you're not prepared enough. And having tried cases with you and Ray, you know, I mean, it's like everybody's prepared. That's just your own paranoia, but you're prepared and you have the energy and the desire to do things to the best of your ability. And so you're always making sure you're on your P's and Q's. And here's something I've noticed over a relatively short career comparatively to some other people out there. But when you start trying cases, the results matter a little less in the eyes of your, you know, opposing counsel who comes up all the time, maybe it's a state attorney or it's, a, you know, insurance defense lawyer. The results matter less to those people and the judge. But what I've noticed is they remember to raise point. They remember high quality advocacy in the courtroom to the point that maybe that insurance defense lawyer is going to settle that next case against you because he or she does not want to go through that again. Even if they pull the fast one and won the last time, they don't want to be embarrassed. They don't want to risk the big loss. So that goes into their calculus. Put that aside. I have noticed it, it has an effect on judges and a lasting one. There are many judges that I won't even name, but just you go to them for pretrial matters that come up when it was criminal. You know, everything's, you know, a bunch of things are resolved by plea or there's motions to suppress and it's kind of this heated thing. Then you try one or two cases in front of them. And then the next thing you know, every time you're in their courtroom, pretrial or during trial, it's a completely different dynamic, almost a little bit more, uh, they're willing to listen to what you have to say and give it credence. I've noticed the same thing in civil. Civil dockets are extremely busy. Judges, they got one thing is an eviction thing. The next thing is a first party property. And then your car accident case shows up. They're handling a ton of shit. They're very busy like everybody else. 
um, and the dynamic is what it is. But I've noticed when you get into trial with a judge, if he or she sees that you're committed to excellence and you're doing things the right way, you're not being underhanded, you're being fair to the other side, you're being genuine and transparent with the bench, that pays dividends for years later. Because the next time you're in front of that judge on a case, again, to, to my earlier point, they might give you the benefit of the doubt or spend or give you more access to the record. I don't know how you two feel about that, but I feel like trying cases is not just about that one result. It can be about the reputation, which pays dividends moving forward, you know? Yeah, no, I, I agree um, 100%. Um, I experienced what you just described when I was a public defender. You know, my first few months as a PD, I had never interned at any PD's office. So I was learning how to be a lawyer and, you know, all that other stuff. So I, I, I readily admit I was terrible at that, you know, but the trial stuff, I'm like, this stuff, I know, I know. I just want to get to trial. And, you know, I was in a particular courtroom where the judge did not like me, right? Because she was just like, you're messing up all this other stuff. We got in front of a jury. She saw me try a case. She's like, where did this come from? You know what I mean? And ever since then, like everything that I did in that courtroom, she gave me a lot of grace because she's like, I know you can try a case, all this other stuff you're learning. Um, so, no, I've definitely noticed that. And for a good portion of my career up until the pandemic, I would walk into a courtroom and they'd be like, oh, I remember you, you know, and you you get a more favorable result for what you're looking for. Um, obviously, after the pandemic, I guess the break made some people forget. Um, and I'm hoping to remind them, especially after this trial we just had in Miami. So, yeah, I, th I think that, look, I mean. I think judges know who try cases and who who don't, and they know who try cases well. I, I think it's 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 memorable. I mean, I, I think that you know uh, there's a few judges that I've that I've had some of my bigger results in front of, and I think they've remembered it. I mean, I I know one judge has because he always brings it up. So it's like you can create that lasting impression of like when I say you know I'm going to trial, they know you're going to trial. Yeah. Right. They give you the benefit of the doubt of, look, I need this 30 days. And sometimes I think even because we're now in this phase where no one wants to give a continuance, right? You know, I'm getting, I had two weeks to do discovery. Discovery's now cut off from someone who filed an answer. And the judge's like, I don't care. I mean, we'll see what the third DCA does with that. But that's like, why am I even in this position? So I think if you tell a judge, look, I need two weeks or I need 30 days, and then I will be ready to try this case because you have done that in front of them. They will know that, like, you're not just moving a continuance because you yeah. don't want to try it. They know you're going to try the case. And so I think that can have, you know, tangential benefits in some of those other aspects, not just, you know, the, the trial aspect. So, yeah, I agree. I mean, that happens. And then there's also this other component that, I, that trial gives you, which because I, I do think there's a, a fair amount of people that might be listening to this and say, hey, this sounds really fun and well, but you know, I didn't have an opportunity to go to the state attorney or PD's office. I'm kind of past that. Or maybe I'm at a small or mid-sized firm or even a big law firm where like I may try two cases in my career. So I'm not going to get that experience. Here's what I would tell people out there though. Find a way, whether it's pro bono if possible, or I mean, really press the edge, find a way to try at least a handful of cases because it'll make the other 95% of how you spend your professional career, whether it's doing discovery and pleadings and motions, it'll make that easier because I think we can all agree on this, but if not, I, I, by all means share. <clears throat> now, when I'm in a case through in the discovery phase, I'm, I'm anticipating trial all the time. Mm -hmm. So if the defense wants to make an issue over, oh, I'm not going to give you this and they're going to object to all this shit. If I really sit and I think, I'm like, I would never even fucking use that. Even if they gave me whatever answer they could give, I'm not going to fight. Versus this other thing that maybe they're not paying close attention to, you're really going to push that because you know a trial, that's something you're going to really want to develop uh, in front of a jury. And so it gives you like that freedom to even be as the paper lawyer pre-trial 
to do motions appropriately, to not like over litigate for needless reasons and to focus on what matters. And here and again lies the issue with the court, which I think is a benefit where you're not in front of the judge on every little last petty discovery issue. You're only fighting on the ones that the judge can tell, I need this for trial. Like sometimes I'll even write an emotion kind of foreshadowing, hey, this is why this is relevant. It's not just for the sake of saying it's, you know, relevant to this issue. It's because a trial, this is going to be an issue, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. So kind of something I want to ask Ray about because it's something fun that we do here. We talk about this expression. We talk about carb only <laughs> diet, right? Um, so Ray, well, I want you to tell me what, what does it mean when we talk about carb only diet? Oh man. Um, so that's, you know, that, that's a nice way of saying, you know, I am a money motivator, right? You're using that, uh, that, that colloquialism of give me that bread, right? Um, I want bread. And that's that's just slang for saying I want money, right? right? So I'm on a carbony diet. Any any case that I take, especially since I joined you guys, you know, my motivation isn't only to just get money, but it's you know that's just a nice way of saying I'm going to get full and fair correct compensation for my client, right? That's that's and that's like the the marching order, carbony diet, right? I'm not going to do anything on any case that isn't going to give my client full and fair compensation right so it's i'm not going to entertain like kind of what jordan was saying like am i really going to make a big fight over something that isn't that important no if, if it doesn't go to what's going to happen in trial then maybe it's not a part of this diet i need to focus on that and that's the reason why we're saying carb only diet it's like a it's a fun thing we started saying in the yeah. office but like that that's kind of like the 360 view of it right right and and that's how it is and, and you know we've talked about this jordan about the idea that you know we will do anything to get full value for our clients and that's including trying the case you know and that's why we yeah. have a trial centered you know firm practice is because you know we have seen the benefits of you know the power of no right they want yeah. they want to offer money and they want to wait till the end and then they're like you know this idea that like oh you can offer me something right before trial and i'll take it maybe you know but if yeah. you're not i mean if you're not tendering policy limits on a case forget about it if we're if, if we're dialed in you know, we're going to trial. I mean, you know, we had that in Marsh Gonzalez. They offered seven fifty, and then we went more than three and a half. We three and a half x that at at trial. And it's like, no, you can, you know, you can't even tender at this point. And and you know, but but on the other side of that, we had a case where, you know, they ultimately tendered in the hot soup case right before trial, and we accepted it because it was in the client's client's interest to do so. So yeah. you know, taking the approach that says like, you know we are going to do everything to maximize the value for our clients. And, and, you know, when we talk about that, that carb only diet, that's, that's what we're doing. We're going to do what we take to maximize that for them. And, and having that approach, I think gets that full and fair value. Right. Well, I think there's an interesting dynamic that like, it's not present in every case, but you know, we're all human beings. So there's like psychology and these, these theories. I mean, they have some, some play where it's like, I remember early in my career learning what I, this is how I perceived it. Mm -hmm. Those cases that are dead bang losers, right? The guy is seen on video coming out of a bar at walking to his car at a Marina gets in, puts it in reverse instead of drive reverses off the dock. A good Samaritan has to dive in and save his life. They do a blood draw breath. He's three times the limit. How the fuck do you win that case? That DUI case. That's not even a case that should be tried. That's like, right, everybody else, cross your fingers and pray you get a good plea. Those cases early in my career are the ones I took unreasonable positions with, but for the benefit of my client, I said, I'll see you at trial. 
when they offered everything. Like, well, I don't understand. No, no, you're going to try this case. Now you flip all the pressures on your opponent. Because if they fucking lose that case, there's a whole bunch of psychology going on there, not to mention probably getting chewed out. How the fuck did you lose that case? This is an embarrassment. This was, a, you know, nobody, you try those cases and you find a way to win them, which I've had the good fortune of doing. You can get some really remarkable results on challenging cases. And I, I think a lot of people out there are more inclined to, let me just settle this, like in the civil context, let me just settle it. This is not a good trial case. That hot soup case was not a good trial case. We workshopped it, workshop, uh, focus grouped it, uh, common sensed it. I mean, my, at the end of the day, that hot soup was in a car, well past the restaurant, a mile down the road, and our client admits to being the one who touched it at the time the top came off and spilled on her. That's not a good trial case. I don't care. Period. End of story. It's not. So the result was great. How did we get the result? We took an unreasonable position monetarily the whole way through. It was reasonable to us, but I'm using unreasonable the standpoint of the defense lawyers and the judge. They don't understand. It's a million dollars or nothing. I don't care what you're offering me beyond that or less than that. It's not enough. I'll see you at trial. And ultimately they cave. So like that crazy DUI case or like the hot suitcase, sometimes you have to literally with your client's blessing and you have to explain to them, there's a lot more pressure on the other side because of how strong the case is for them. They might actually get scared and pay you more money than they otherwise would if you're kind of like tiptoeing around the whole case, you know? Yeah, well, we've, we've said that at mediation. You know, when they're like, oh, this is a case that you're going to lose. I was like, great. Then if I'm supposed to lose, I have no risk. And they like don't comprehend that. Yeah. I'm like, you're the one that's supposed to win. If you don't win, that's bad on you. Like I'm supposed to lose. Mm -hmm. So if I don't, if I go in, I take a shot, I lose. Okay. Well, that was what was expected, you know? And then, but then if I win, you know, then they're over there. You know, we had the, we had the case where it was a parking lot crash. It was, it was me and Jordan were trying the case. It was one of our first trials together. And I remember the adjuster was like, we were like splitting lunch and for the jurors and they'd like asked for a calculator, you know, they were like fighting in the back. We thought there was going to be a mistrial and, you know, she was still uber confident, you know, that they were going to win on a case where we did a proposal for settlement for $20,000 on a hundred thousand dollar policy case, 20 grand. My client was willing to take. They did one for nine. Jury comes back with $200,000 verdict. But the key to that is the day one of trial, they were trying to offer it. I think they even offered more. But by that time, you policy. said, yeah, no. What? You said, no, now it's 100 or whatever the number was, but it was multiples. And like, well, that's ridiculous. You're being unreasonable. And there again is the point. Yeah, I'm going to be unreasonable. You better win this because otherwise you're going to have egg on your face. And they didn't. And, and, you know, what's interesting about that case is like, you know, I think about some of my trials and, and uh, you know, kind of we go back in time. It's like, you know, we had a jury selection. There was a juror. This was when I, you know, still was didn't really know like the, you know, the Mitnick stuff and, and was, was early, early on. But we had, you know, I used to do this. This Jordan gave me this. It's a te teacher hypothetical, right? When you talk about bias by an expert witness. And I would ask the jurors like who here has got a, a kid that's in school, right? They, they go to school. And then I ask them. And, and I use this guy, Mr. Bukovic, I'll never forget him. And I said, well, listen, you know, what happens if you get a call from your teacher and you find out your daughter, they say your daughter did something bad or whatever, and she gets detention, you know, yeah. what would you think? And he was like, well, and you know, I, I, I forget the context of what he was talking about, but it, it, the point I'm trying to establish is that they're in kind of in a position of authority. They're saying detention, you want to kind of defer to them. And I said, okay, what would you do then in that same scenario if you found out that that teacher was being paid $20 for every kid that was in detention? Would that still change your opinion and would you still defer to them? And he was like, absolutely not. I was like, well, why? They're still in this position of power, all this. And he was like, because they're getting paid for it. 
And so I use that to demonstrate that the idea that experts or anybody can do different things for money and we can agree that on, and I say it on both sides, that, you know, that people can do things for money. And he was in the back. Jordan was like, you know, we didn't want to put him on or we had questions like, look, that's my dog. Let's put him on there. (laughs) We put him on the jury and then sure enough, he was the one fighting for us. He comes in he was like beefing with a juror. They had to come back the next day. So they left, they came back. You definitely have a sixth sense for that. I don't even want to, I know we talked, we had a jury X episode where we talk about like how some of this can be data driven and that's true, but there's something to be said. I don't have it. I'll tell you right now. I don't have it. You have it. You've got that. Whatever it is, you can just identify one or two people that you know, there's a connection with, and you've been right every time. It's well, a very impressive. I'm also talking to them. Right. And so I get to, you know, and, and again, you know, I believe that sometimes when you have a connection with something that's yeah. more important than like who they are. Cause sometimes they, they want to fight for you. Yeah. But you know, the point is, so we were in this case thinking we're trying it. We had a PFS of 20. They're like, Oh, we'll pay that. And I was like, no, no, we're going to get attorney's fees now. Right. And in that trial, I'll never forget this. And this is talk about you to your point you said about being good on your feet, right? Thinking this expert witness came in and brought this big old giant stack of paper. Like, look, look, I read it. Look at all these papers I read. And when he left, he left them on the witness stand. Right. So I was in closing argument. I was like, you think that guy read anything? That was a prop. Look, look, they're still right there. That wasn't even part of his file. He just printed it out so he could hold it up to you. Look how big it is, ladies and gentlemen, you know, and jury kind of you know they smile and laugh but it's like it's those things that you can yeah. kind of you know use the courtroom flip demonstratives and then we ultimately won and i remember the uh that the the insurance adjuster like stormed out and didn't pay for lunch so we were like no worries <laughs> we'll pick it up we'll, we'll pay for lunch at that time so well let me since we have ray on here and i i just think you're like an ideal person to talk about this i think all of us fortunately have won far more trials than we've lost. And I think that's awesome. And I'm proud of it. And I hope that continues. But as I've, I've, as I was taught, and I think now having done it, I know to be a truth. You're not really trying cases if you're not losing every, every once in a while, because it's impossible to go undefeated. Because to me, if you're undefeated, that means your case selection is so nitty that like, I, I don't know, even if I'm impressed by it. So in the real world where you're trying cases and you're taking risks, calculated risks with your client, and, and sometimes you even feel like, oh, this is a great case. And then it doesn't go your way. Can we talk a little bit about like dealing with defeat? Cause I think that's a <clears throat> underserved talking point in the trial or committee. You know, everybody's out there talking about their big numbers or their big acquittals as well that they should be. We should all celebrate success. And I think that's awesome. But part of getting to those successful verdicts, I yeah. think is being able to stomach the defeat, the ones you didn't see coming or the ones you probably anticipated and unfortunately, it came to fruition. Uh, Ray, are there any are there any like tips, or maybe you even tell your students when they lose a competition against a team that maybe they shouldn't have in a particular round or something like that? How to get better? How to overcome and put that in proper perspective? So, you know, I'm I, ironically enough, I went a large portion of my career where I, where when I was first chair, I didn't lose a trial until obviously it started happening. Um, you know, I will say that I've learned so much in failure and in losing than I ever did in winning. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm the person who wins a case. I'm going to order the transcript and I'm going to listen and critique myself harshly. I'm that person. Um, But in losing what I learned, and this is what I tell all my students, like, it's not a loss, it's a lesson. And Mm -hmm. and the lesson often is, is, and, and you could have done everything perfect. And this is, and that's usually one of the worst losses to take is the ones where it's like, man, I did everything right and I still lost. 
right? And I and I always tell everybody the lesson in that is this: life will never always go your way. Mm-hmm. You know, like you're gonna fall down, but as long as your process is good, good process, bad result, it doesn't matter. Because more often than not, if your process is good, you're always gonna get a majority of the time good results. Where where often you know I criticize people is like, okay, your process is terrible, but you're winning. Okay, that's 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 bad, right? Because that's not repeatable. That's not something you can teach to others. And in losing what I learned, especially the first trial that I lost, what I learned was while I thought I had a good process, I ultimately learned that my process was it, it, it was an average process. There were so many things that I did and left open for exploitation. And I ran into someone who who saw it. Right. My arrogance, you know, and that's the other thing. When you win a bunch of cases, you, you can get cocky and arrogant. That particular prosecutor, she saw weakness and and it was so simple, so simplistic what she did to defeat what I thought was an airtight defense case. And it made me, and that's the other thing it taught me, simplicity. You can't beat simplicity. You can have the most complex, convoluted thing, but if somebody comes in with just a simple answer, you lose. And that, and that to me was like the biggest eye opener and it changed the entire way that I approached trial where now I embrace simplicity, mm-hmm. right? And, um, you know, and, and that's the other thing I tell my students, like, listen, and, and, I invite both of you guys to come judge whenever you get a chance, right? I always ask them, explain explain your case to me in one sentence. The moment you go past that one sentence, I already know your case doesn't make sense, right? And and I think that, at least for me in my career, has been the biggest lesson. It's like, keep it simple. You can have a complex approach, but if what you're communicating to a jury is com- like complex or whatever, you're going to lose, right? Even if you win, sometimes I think you're going to lose if it's too complex for them. Yeah. I agree with that. I mean, complexity favors the defense. I think in, in our in our world, um, you know, we we deal a lot with you know sometimes very complicated injuries, but you know you want to bo- kind of boil them down to it, its nuance of you know what this does, and and really it's just a human life that's been affected. It's not so much like oh this particular injury, this particular that, blah blah blah. Like that's boring. Like no one wants to hear that. But yeah. how does it change their life? What's the human story? And I think that you know, allows a simplistic approach to, I mean, what do we have in that trial? We had, what, 13 experts all around, you know? Um, you know, neuropsych, neurology, you know, surgeries, injections, and, you know, kind of and made it simple. And that's why sometimes with expert witnesses, I'm doing a 30-minute direct. Is that it, for Marsha? Yeah. You know, a 30-minute direct. Yeah. Because you don't need to be sitting up there and going through everything. And then they may do an hour-and-a-half cross, and like get into the medicine and all that and like the jurors just i feel like they kind of turn off to that yeah i actually think what speaks to the simplicity that you're referencing is the the person who ended up being your juror asked the question are you still beautiful yeah that right there the like think about the amount of people that were involved in that case and it literally boiled down for that juror are you do you still feel beautiful do you still think you're beautiful you know that was the question right like yeah. that's that's and I see, I would have never, if you would have talked to me four years ago, I would have never really understood how simplicity can be probably the most powerful thing that you can do as a lawyer. Right. And like, just, just, and I, I remember when John told me, I was like, wow, that's, yeah, that's your case. Yeah, right? well, and she picked it up from the video and, and in the video, she was with her friend. It was the first time she could walk, you know, two days or three days later after the crash. And she made a joke to her friend, like, do I look cute? Yeah. You know, and she's in a neck brace, you know, yeah. um, had a fractured neck, multiple broken bones. And, you know, 
I used it in the context of the video with the friend to say like this kind of the person she was like even in her darkest moment she's still trying to make light of the situation have fun and make jokes but she took that upon herself to think that she may really think that she has yeah. kind of this self-worth the self-image issues which isn't really where I was focusing so she kind of yeah. you know it's almost like it's like the movie Inception you know I didn't plant that into her mind she planted it herself so that's what allowed it to grow, and that's why she asked a question. You know, you said in the video, yep. you asked if you were cute. Do you still be- think you're beautiful? You know, and, and ultimately yep. she was the four person, got a good result. So yeah, I mean, it's, it's the simplicity. It's just the things that we think are important as lawyers. And this is what I preach to my students. Remember, at the end of the day, no matter how smart you are, the people that you're making these arguments to may not have your level of education and more importantly they don't have your level of understanding so you need to make your understanding accessible to all right well they don't know the case yeah you know you know the case like we know the case we know the injury like we know it inside and out you know and it's like you're coming in with complete strangers trying to learn about something in a a shortened amount of time like and, and if you give them and bombard them with too much information you know that that can create uncertainty but if you're like look this is the case you know this is a case about a car crash that ultimately, you know, change someone's life forever, you know, or something, something simple like a, you know, that's it. You know, this is, this is why we're here. We're here for just, you know, and, and going through that, they understand the mission. You teach them the mission and, and do it in a, in a simple way to allow them to, to find and, and effectuate justice for your client is, is, is a hard thing to do. You know, you, you yeah. feel like you want to tell all, like, I got so many good facts. I yeah. want to give it all to them, but you don't. You know, and and the biggest, simplest points while also addressing the bad facts on your side, yeah. you know, is really the, the approach that I take now that I've seen, you know, like you've mentioned, to be pretty effective. So, yeah. Ray, what do you think about, I mean, because you've seen it in the trial team setting, like where there's a winner and a loser of rounds. You've seen it in real life trials and courtrooms. What do you think about that, like, secondary level of advocacy or basically not compromising your advocacy, like body language in the courtroom, demeanor, uh, interacting with opposing counsel or not during the trial, like within, within view of the jurors and all that. Cause I always, I still think back, I've like, I'm not going to call them nightmares, but I do think back to one trial, which Sean and I may not have won anyway. It was a very challenging case. It was a UN case against USAA, but the defense put on this expert who was so laughable that John and I burst out in a fit of hysteria that we couldn't really control when, when that expert's video depot that we took was playing because it was just so preposterous. He was talking about the spine as a piece of salami and he is a beer belly when he's cooking, but like this, like, what the hell are you talking about? And I was, I couldn't stop laughing. I was like an elementary school student. Um, and again, I, I think we lose that case anyway, but I do think back to, I'm like, shit, if the jurors think we think this is a big fucking joke, why do the hell they want to come our way? So maybe you can kind of shed some light on your experience from academic, academic to now. Only thing I was gonna say is we don't lose that case now. Absolutely not. There's no way. There's no. No, way. I meant back then, based on how it was presented. I don't yeah, think that honest, changed it. As a younger lawyer,s yes, I think we we would have lost. But now we don't lose that case. Just I just want to add that point. Yeah, I think, you know, here's the reality of trial, and I I, I think all of us understand this, especially those of us who have done trial work. Even though your name is not up on the marquee, quote unquote, right? You're actually on trial just as much as your client is because the assessment the jury's making when they're sitting there in judgment is, okay, this is who you decided 
to hire and they're not taking this in the, in your in your um example that you gave they're not taking this serious so then maybe i shouldn't take the client serious and you know i've i've had situations where oh, i 100 percent know that the jury was judging me in addition to my client especially depending on like the charges like even to take it back to the homicide case we did um a few weeks ago i 100 percent believe you know part of that verdict was that the jury saw between the defense table and the prosecution table a totally different level of skill set right when we got up there we were smooth we were, we're you know we're getting our points across we're not getting flustered when they got up there there was a lot of you know and and again i'm not knocking those prosecutors but in one prosecutor in particular could not ask a question she would like look upwards and like repeat 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 just to get a question out and i think a jury i think a jury when they look at that i think that does play a small part right and and that's kind of one of the things that we teach on trial team is like look they're always watching you right mm -hmm. that's why we tell them and i tell clients like listen pretend like you're taking notes even if you have no notes to take pretend like you're because the perception i want to give to the jury is is especially in a criminal context this is literally your life if you're up here just walk you know hanging around looking around it's like okay then maybe you're not taking this seriously because if this doesn't go your way i get to go home you don't get to go home so you have a bigger stake than i do and giving the perception to the jury that I'm interested, invested in this, right? And I think it's important for me as the lawyer when I'm sitting there, you know, and, and again, I think it just depends on your trial, but I think a jury will kind of give you permission to act a certain way if trial is going, like if you have a particularly bad witness on the stand and you've been professional and nice and you haven't really laid down the hammer, I think the jury will be okay if you decided, you know what, I'm just going to apply pressure now. Right. And again, to take it back to our homicide trial, one of one of my goals when I walked into that trial was I'm like, look, I'm not going to be, you know, outrageous version of me. I'm going to be very calm. I'm, I'm going to get my points across. But when we got to the end of trial and I cross examined the expert, I think at that point, the jury kind of gave me permission to say, hey, listen, it's been ridiculous. You can go crazy. Mm -hmm. And I promise you I did. Right. Um, but I think they gave me that permission. But I but to your point, Jordan, I, I think it is important to always be mindful of the jury. Cause like I spend a majority of my time in trial watching the jury. I don't even watch the witness on the stand cause I can listen, you know, but my eyes are like, I, I want to see how are they reacting to what's being said. Right. Yeah. I mean, I mean that, that's a good point. I mean, I, I don't do that kind of stuff anymore. I mean, that was obviously me and Jordan. I mean, I, <laughs> I mean, he literally, the, 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 he's underselling what the guy was talking about. He literally said a bulging disc is like, when you have a beer belly because you hate your wife and you're at home and like I yeah was like, it was ridiculous yeah like yeah. it was just he's like you know and he did you know and i just and it was by video and we even knew it was coming and it still just seemed so preposterous but i think i walked out of the back of the courtroom at some point i punished no, no, myself no. so what i did was so i got mad at the video depot right because he was we had been given payment information from usa of the insurance company of how much money they had paid this doctor and i was like look Here's the monies that I have. It said you've been paid two hundred like seventy five thousand dollars the last three years, and he's like, well, I don't know if that's true. And I was like, all right, well, here's the information they gave me. You know, do you have any reason to dispute that? He's like, well, I can't agree or dispute that. I just, I was like, well, look, it's here right now. Like, add it up. I'm not yeah. going through any of that. You know, and, and we kind of got into a fight. You know, which knowing now, and I'll say, you know, I could have used that in a different way, right? Yeah. I could have said you know, about his inability to recognize the information that no one disputes that's given to us by the insurance company. He wants to act like that's somehow not true or not been paid for. 
He's not being open. He's not being brutally honest, right? And I use yeah. brutal honesty as my thing of saying, is that being brutally honest? Is that even being honest? Yeah. Right? You know, and so I don't, I try not to, ha- I try to have much less emotion, much, you know, very streamlined, very straightforward as best, at least in front of the jury. Sometimes in depositions now I can not get mad, but, you know, we had one recently where I had a guy called me a basically a used car salesman. Yeah. You know, which I, I had to take a break because I was, like, foaming from the mouth because I was so angry. And, and, and I'm pretty fortunate it was a Zoom deposition because if it was in person, and like, look, I'm not an angry guy, but I just don't, you know, I work very hard at what we do. I, we work very hard at our craft, and if you attack my, my integrity and what I do and, and how I fight for my clients as an expert witness who's who makes hundreds of thousands of dollars doing this every year, and, and I just didn't take kindly to that at all um you know, but somebody like that because i was listening to that deposition he gave you many more gems that you're going to be able to parlay a trial i mean he literally said in no uncertain terms i've been an expert for 40 years i know better than to agree with what you're asking right yeah. basically just telling you i'm sitting here purposefully being you know disagreeable whatever if that's even a word uh just for the sake of it now you want to talk about lack of objectivity Here's a guy openly admitting for 40 years. That's what he knows his job is. So there's going to be a lot to work question at trial is, you know, so you've been doing this for 40 years. So, you know, not to answer my question, yes or no. Right. Yeah. And then he's going to say no. And then I'll peach him with his own words. And so, you know, obviously, you know, the less emotion, you know, that the approach, you know, not doing what we do because the jury does always watch. And, And I think that's, um, you know, how, how they take it and how they perceive it is, is the most important aspect because I don't care how I feel or the witness fears, or the judge yeah. feels or OC, it's how the jury feels. And I think to your point, if they do see that, that disparaging or not disparaging, but the level or difference in the skill set, yeah. it can, it can play a role. You know, I, I've seen, you know, when I had a, a case where we, I was having to continually object to a witness who or a, or a lawyer who could not ask a non-objectionable question Yep. To the point that some of the jurors like were smiling and laughing about it every time I had to object and seeing their frustration. And I wasn't doing it, um, you know, just to do it. I was doing it because they were improper questions. And so, you know, that I think that does have an effect. And, you know, um, I, I wanted to just throw this in back because for those that are listening is that our my first trial I lost. My second trial I won. Then we got taken away on appeal. Um you know, and so I started my career, I don't want to say losing, I started my career learning, right? Yeah. And then, you know, we've kind of seen this progression as, as we've perfected our craft more, we've had much better, great success at our trials like our last few. It's, you know, thinking about the last loss, it's been, you know, a few years now, Yeah. you know, because, and not that they're not hard cases, but because we have that, those learning lessons that you described. So, you know, Ray, I want to, I want to thank you again for coming on the show, you know, I'm fortunate to have um, to Ray join the team. As a backstory, I didn't actually have a, to tell about the, the the members that are listening. Is that you know Ray initially we had tried to get him to come work for us. He told us no, um, and then you know the recent Marsha Gonzalez trial. He was a, he was very helpful in the preparation and, and got to see how we do it here. And he ultimately joined the team. So we're we're very excited to have Ray here, to have him in the civil realm, to be trying cases, taking his wealth of experience in trial advocacy. And so, you know, and, and again, thank for him for coming on the show. So thanks, Ray. Thanks, everyone, for listening. And, All right. Thank you. Yeah. Tune in next week. Thanks for checking out the John and Jordan on Justice podcast.
If you enjoyed today's content, consider leaving us a review and be sure to subscribe wherever you heard this podcast so you never miss an episode. For more information or to connect with John and Jordan, check out at OnJusticePod on Instagram and Twitter or check out Discord for PlaintiffAttorneys.com to communicate with them and like-minded plaintiff attorneys in a private Discord server. Until next time, this is the John and Jordan on Justice Podcast. Podcast.